Hello and welcome to 2022's final edition of The District. I am Spectator World's Managing Editor Matt McDonald. And joining me today, we have our Washington Editor Amber Athey and our Editor-at-Large Ben Dominich. We are going to be talking about the year as it's passing and then the year to come. But firstly, guys, how were your how were your Christmases? Well, mine was mine was good, though I, I have to say I don't recommend doing Christmas in a, ho- a household where you have a two year old and a, a very pregnant wife who are both sick at the same time, because you effectively end up being nursemaid for them <laughs> at, at every turn. But it was it was uh, plenty plenty of joy, let's say, in the household and. And other than a lot of runs for medicine and t- and tissues and and dealing with runny noses, it was it was a good Christmas had by all. I had a nice Christmas as well. It was actually my first time traveling. I went down to Sarasota, Florida, to spend time with my fiance's family, and uh, unfortunately, the weather did not cooperate. So the cold front across the U.S. made its way all the way down to Southern Florida, and it was no higher than really 50 degrees the entire oh, time we were there which <laughs> it, it did put a wrench in our golf plans but we still got out plenty of under armor on and had a good time and i got to see my future niece open tons of presents from santa so it was really fun where we were staying it was 16 <laughs> so, so. <laughs> I, yeah I'm, no I'm thanks just <laughs> that i got the same weather in the southeast in the southeast of england that you did in central florida like, that's made me that's made me very happy so let's start off by talking about uh, the biggest stories of the year. I mean, if we're talking globally, I suppose we'd say probably the, the most significant thing that happened this year was the invasion of Ukraine and kind of the subsequent impact of that from a, you know, from a foreign policy domestic, so, you know, from a foreign policy perspective, certainly, but then also from a domestic policy to see kind of how politicians in America have either taken up that issue or seen it as a distraction. So Ben, I guess I'll start with you. You know, we're 10 months now into this special military operation, I believe Putin no longer calls it, but into the the war in Ukraine. And I believe the omnibus bill is in the, by the time this podcast is out, it would have been signed in the Caribbean by the president, which includes additional funding for Ukraine. What do you make of the kind of state of affairs and America's involvement going forward? Well, certainly, I think that the situation in Ukraine turned out to be another indictment of the expert class in both regards. There were a lot of people who were saying that Putin will never actually do this. He's rattling the saber, but, you know, he understands that he could how much he will become, you know, uh, ostracized by the rest of the world and the follow on economic effects would prevent him from doing it. Obviously, that did not prevail in terms of the, of the conversation in t- inside the Kremlin. And then there were people as well saying this is going to be very easy for the Russians to accomplish right off the bat. And a lot of very important experts were saying, you know, this is going to be something where Kiev falls uh, in a matter of days. Obviously, uh, that turned out not to be true. The Ukrainian armed forces turned out to be very different from the ones that Putin had confronted in the past. Uh, And now we are in this interesting stage where I think that the, the real question is kind of what what terms Ukraine wants to end this war on more than the terms that the Russians want to end this war on. Zelensky, for instance, was asked in an interview recently about what would happen in terms of defining a just peace for uh, Ukraine. And he 
gave this answer that was basically saying, well, the further that this goes along and the more people who see their children die, the less that just peace enters the mind and more revenge enters the mind. And so the idea that the Ukrainians are going to be happy stopping at where things were before Putin ramped things up uh, is also, I think, an open question to be dealt with in the coming year. But certainly the flow of resources into Ukraine is going to have a ton of follow-on effects. Uh, and I think it's both recharged a lot of debates about uh, the role that other EU members need to play in terms of bolstering their own armed forces, other NATO members paying their fair share, which I think is going to be a big part of the political conversation on both sides of the Atlantic in the coming year. I'm no foreign policy expert, but I think the one part of this internationally that interests me is what this means about the relationship between Russia and China, because I think Putin was kind of banking on the fact that if he did encounter struggles when going through with this invasion, that China was going to have his back. And instead, they've basically stayed a silent, you know, standby, standby or bystander can speak a silent bystander to this whole mess and have really left Putin hanging. So I, I think that sends a signal to the world that ultimately Russia and China might have some things in common. They might have some common goals, but China is looking out for number one. And I think it's a good reminder to you know the U.S. and its allies that these things can easily be split apart in a way that benefits us ultimately. Domestically, the war in Ukraine has revamped this question in the Republican Party about what our foreign policy should look like and what a conservative vision of foreign policy is. And you do see, you know, the establishment old guard sent, being willing to send billions upon billions of dollars in spending package after spending package to a country that ultimately is very corrupt. We don't have a good accounting of where the money is actually going. We don't have an indication of how much this 80 billion plus 80 billion plus 80 billion is actually benefiting the Ukrainian efforts in the war. And yet we've just passed another omnibus bill to fund the government through the end of next fiscal year that includes another 80 billion to Ukraine. And it seems like not a lot of members of the Republican Party are yelling stop. I mean, you have the small Freedom Caucus coalition and a couple of senators, but for the most part, everyone seems content to go along with the status quo. And then along with that comes all of the other foreign spending and foreign aid that the U.S. doles out on an annual basis, whether it's hundreds of millions of dollars for gender studies programs in Pakistan, which is the common meme that everyone throws out just to show how ridiculous some of the things that we spend money on are. And if there was one lesson from... Trump in 2016 and a lot of his presidency, is it's that the American people are really not interested in either playing the world's policeman anymore or in using all of this tax money to benefit other countries when there's so many problems here at home. And it's kind of shocking to me that this has not been a bigger conversation among conservatives in the Republican Party as we look at the spending as it pertains to the Russia-Ukraine war. The spending there is isn't it isn't it consistent with Trump era spending though because I mean he also was still signing up on signing off on these huge bills that had big sums of money going abroad. That's true, and there there were efforts from his administration to make a lot of foreign aid rescissions, and he was pushed back upon by several high level cabinet members. 
so no, he wasn't perfect on that front at all. I know that OMB, Russ fought over at OMB, was pushing really hard to cut a lot of these woke foreign programs as well as aid to Central and South America, which they basically use as a blackmail mechanism to say, you know, if you just give us more money, then we'll help you stop illegal immigrants from coming into your country and didn't go as far in terms of cuts as I would have liked to see. But I would say that the attitude during the Trump administration was much more oriented towards an isolationist or at least sane foreign policy as opposed to just spend, spend, spend. Uh, just to one point to uh, Amber's domestic frame, which I think is accurate, is I think that it's really roiled a lot of the conservative conversation about the use of armed forces, in part because the reaction among Republican voters and a lot of the poll data there is essentially evenly split. It depends on how you ask the question, but basically, you know, Democrats overwhelmingly in favor of, of spending all of this money and, and the level of involvement independence in favor of it. But then Republicans are essentially down the middle in terms of how you ask the question. In particular, they like you have kind of a majority of Republicans saying that they're in favor of sending them weapons. And then you have a slight minority of Republicans, you know, saying uh, that they support sending them money. So it's like it's one of these situations where that itself reflects, I think, the split that a lot of Republicans have in the electorate. But that split isn't accurately reflected in Washington. It's much more the slim sort of Freedom Caucus-y kind of members who are in opposition to this, or at least will voice that opposition, because basically, I mean, essentially every senator on the Republican side has gone along with this to varying degrees, but it's still like they're, they're basically all on the same side, with the exception of Rand Paul and to an extent Josh Hawley. But like, I don't know what J.D. Vance is going to say when he shows up next year about Ukraine. He voiced a lot of things on the campaign trail about that, the kind of thing that Amber was just saying about, you know, we're spending so much money overseas, we should be spending more back home. But will he really be voting against the kind of big packages that we're talking about because they still spend money overseas? I don't know. And that's something that I think we're going to find out in the in the coming uh, months and year in a way that we, you know, really kind of have, we'll, we'll be monitoring to see how much the campaign rhetoric actually matches up with the way that they vote uh, and work once they get to Washington. And I think one of the big frustrations with this entire dialogue is that there have been Republicans who have been willing to throw around this leftist insult that if you question foreign aid, then you're pro-Russia or pro-Putin. And it's like infuriating. Like, Why are you doing that to members of your own party who have a legitimate policy debate over you know, foreign aid? And it, it's, it goes back to when I think Tucker first started questioning on his show where this war was going to end up, what the goals of the Ukrainians were, which now seem to be, as Ben mentioned, getting increasingly to the point where there's not, there's going to be, it's going to be really hard to broker a peace deal. <laughs> yeah. And basically they're just going to push this as, as long as they can and kind of have a almost delusional sort of attitude toward it. So, it, I mean, when you hear like the Mitch McConnell coalition, essentially throwing out the pro-Putin charge to members of the party that have always been more fiscally conservative in terms of spending, particularly when it comes to foreign spending. It's just like, what are you guys doing? Well, I mean, the only person who actually engaged in pro-Putin policies that I can understand at this point is Joe Biden, because he came in and he completely reversed track on Nord Stream. He reversed track on, you know, a lot of the sanctioning of various Russians. He basically offered an olive branch to Russia. And that blew up in his face because the actual the, the one thing that this has proven, I think, 
is that the the use of hard power as a deterrent is something that works. And this idea of integrated deterrence, this sort of soft power diplomacy, let's all get along kumbaya crap is totally out the window. It does not work. It did not work under Obama. It doesn't work under Biden. And it's the whole reason why, you know, look, if you if you had this to do over again, you know, you'd want to send more weapon systems to Ukraine in advance in the hopes of actually preventing Russia from entering this war because they viewed it as a harder target. The fact that they viewed it as a soft target and the fact that they got all this kumbaya attitude from Biden is what bolstered uh, Putin in the first place to be able to go to Xi and say, look, we're going to just run rampant over there. You know, this, they're headed by a comedian. He's going to run. He's going to you know, flee the country. And now you have this predicament that has you know, put Putin and, and those close to him in weaker positions domestically in Russia uh, than, they are, than they have been really ever. Obviously, uh, one big winner this year has been the security contractors in Northern Virginia who've had a good year. I think mean, we ran a piece on this maybe it was, uh, in the summer or late or uh, late summer, early fall, but it was basically saying that there is nothing more valuable to you if you work at you know one of your Raytheons or Northrop Grimmons than an active battlefield upon which to test the weapons which you have to sell worldwide. And they, I think the guy, um, one of the experts who was spoken to that piece basically said, like, that makes it worth all the spending alone is the opportunity for america to then sell and export arms which obviously is anti 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 tank drone makers of the world unite (laughs) (laughs) um we touched on joe biden a bit there i would posit that i mean obviously whenever you see members of his administration be that ron Klain or karen jean pierre putting out like the laundry list of the achievements uh, of the administration this year like it comes across i think a bit insufferable and aaron sorkin but you could look at the facts and uh, and there is a case we made that Joe Biden actually had a pretty good year, isn't it? I mean, I, uh, I certainly think that you cannot say anything other than he's been the most successful president, you know, uh, other other really than George W. Bush post 9-11 in terms of a midterm that we've seen. You know, it's it's really unprecedented to see someone with the kind of headwinds that he faced in terms of the economic measures, the inflationary measures, the level to which people think that the country is going in the wrong direction, the level of his personal unpopularity, which is massive, have the kind of electoral success in a midterm as he had. And certainly when it comes to the legislative side of the thing, things, they'll talk a, a big game about how much they pass, but really what they just passed is massive, massive spending packages that go to their priorities. And what that means is there's less of the, it's kind of the, the, it's the frog in the, in the pot because you have less of a kind of brick wall that you run into, which in, in the sense of a policy like Obamacare, where there's like a launch date and you see things change. It's more that there's now these massive new pools of spending for states and localities to pull from for all of these different leftist pet, pet projects that are going to lay out over the coming years and that we'll be paying for for years and years to come. Uh, and so I think that we're only beginning to understand how much impact that's going to have uh, on our lives. And it's going to take a while. But I think, you know, they have a lot to sort of pound their chest about. And that's just a sign, I think, of how significant the level of loyalty is among Democrats uh, in the absence of ideological division or 
in an attitude where ideological division is all just kept behind the scenes and under wraps with the exception of some squads disputes, fake fights that they have with the democratic leadership where AOC is the one no vote or Ilhan Omar is the one no vote. They kept things locked down with a very tiny majority and they were able to do enormous things with it. And, you know, I just don't think that Republicans behave the same way because their ideological disputes are front and center and regular. And it's they're never willing to sort of uh, subjugate those to the priorities of uh, a party that is generally united about what they ought to do and, and what direction they ought to go in. Yeah, I mean, from a partisan standpoint, Biden is obviously a very unsuccessful president in that the things that he has managed to accomplish are bad for the country. That being said, Ben is spot on in the sense that the fact that he's still standing after all of this is incredible. And sure, it's it's with the assistance of a Democratic Party that constantly walks in lockstep. It's with the assistance of a media that doesn't ask questions and and is is loyal to the democratic regime and and gets all of their talking points from them but we headed into the 2022 midterms with historic levels of inflation with historic numbers of illegal migrants crossing the southern border with gas prices at exorbitant levels and american energy in independence decreasing rapidly on a daily basis uh, and in a war between Russia and Ukraine that probably never would have happened if anyone other than Biden were president. And yet the Democrats held the Senate and only gave up a slim majority in the House, which has rendered Republican resistance effectively useless. And Republicans are still fighting about who's going to lead their party in the House anyway. So until they get that sorted out, they can't do much of anything. And before the Republicans even take power, They've managed to fund the government for another year with all of the Democratic priorities. So the one thing that the House might actually be able to impact is already taken care of. So it's pretty mind blowing that the Democrats are going into, you know, the third year of Joe Biden's presidency with this much of an advantage. So, yeah, it's been a great year for Biden. The only downside is that there have been whispers among the media and the Democratic Party that they'll move on from him in 2024 because he's either too old or too too riddled with brain worms to continue. But, I mean, it, does that really bother Biden ultimately? If it were me, I'd be thrilled. I'd be like, yeah, get me out of here. I'm ready to go hang out in Wilmington and Rehoboth Beach for for the end of my days. So I might just stay in St. Croix. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why not? I mean, that's the only negative. But is it really a negative? Yeah. Like, well, my understanding is that the, his brain worms are currently conversing with each other to decide whether to announce the exact time of what I'm to be. <laughs> um, I want to touch on a couple of things you said there. Um, one is a, a new story which is going to emerge in the next week or so, uh, early in 2023, which is about you know that Republicans taking over the House and House leadership. And Amber, I'm going to ask you about this, but it's related to something that Ben said. Ben talked about the ability of, you know, Pelosi and House leadership to even in a, in instances where they've got difference of opinion to be able to kind of run that party with a whip and bring in the majority of like, say, squad voters, or moderates into the fold to vote on on the, the way that the Biden administration and the Democratic Party wants them to run at large. That's the challenge in front of Kevin McCarthy if he's to secure the speakership is to is to be able to run a very slim majority with a three line whip. Do you envision that happening? Do you think that 
that is playing a role in the negotiations which he's attempting to have now with regards to securing the number of votes to secure the speakership? And if not, do you think there's an alternative candidate in the in the Republican in House among House Republicans who will have a more successful go at it than than he would? Well, what I will say is that I'm not a fan of Kevin McCarthy, and I. But that being said, I think what is potentially attractive about him as a speaker is that he's not an ideologue. And it's sort of the same situation with McConnell in the Senate, where I'm always chirping at these people because I think that their priorities are misplaced. I don't think they're very conservative. But when it comes to being in charge and keeping a group of people together... And when they do care about something, getting it passed, these guys are tacticians, right? Like their job is not to have a certain position on a certain issue. And when they get in trouble, it's because they do that. But they are good, I think, at governing a coalition. I mean, McCarthy's gotten to where he is because he is about politics, not ideology, So, I mean, there's something to be said for having somebody like that in charge. If you have Andy Biggs in charge, um, who I think is the top person challenging McCarthy right now, I mean, I feel like he would get so distracted by policy debates that it wouldn't be so much about, let's get all the Republicans together and be against whatever the Democrats are doing, even if we're doing it in a way that seems not super palatable to the ultra-conservatives, right? I always think about going back to the Trump administration when McConnell was running the Senate, I don't think if you had, if you had anyone else in charge of the Senate in that time period, I don't think that you would have had the Supreme Court justice held until after the 2016 election. And I don't think you would have had this historic confirmation of federal judges that you saw under Mitch McConnell. That was the fact that he was able to work with Trump to accomplish that was huge and I think has been one of the biggest conservative victories in a long time. I mean, would you have the overturning of Roe v. Wade without Mitch McConnell? Like, maybe not. But that, again, that being said, I have a lot of personal and ideological qualms with McConnell and McCarthy. So I I just don't think that there's a perfect person to put in that position. The problems within the Republican Party are much bigger than any one person. And until they really figure out how to have the democratic attitude that Ben was getting at with having their quabbles behind closed doors, then, you know, whether it's McCarthy or Biggs or somebody else, it's it's not really going to change all that much. I would just add on to that. I think that, you know, one of the things that especially Republicans who've been there for a while have taken away is that they've seen ideologically more conservative speakers flame out very quickly. They get one or two things done and then the the pressure gets around and they can't pull people together. And, you know, whether it's Newt Gingrich or whether it's Paul Ryan, they exit the stage. I think that the toolkit that Kevin McCarthy brings, is basically, it's, it's like the head of a fraternity. He's not the life of the party, but he does get the party paid for. <laughs> and I think that what you see in terms of his approach this, this midterm it did actually work. You know, if he had not recruited as well as, as he did, if they hadn't spent money, you know, in, in a lot of places where they did, then you wouldn't even have a House Republican majority. It's the Senate and the NRSC and the recruitment side of that that had a horrible botch. I mean, to have 
a one only one Senate seat flip in Pennsylvania and have it flip in the op in uh, in the direction of the Democrats was it's just an embarrassment. You know, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. And so I think that given the options that they have, there's just not someone who wants this job at this moment who would be particularly better at it than McCarthy, in my view. Now, that could change. You know, I think that if they go through one more cycle that's a disappointment, then I think he'll be out and someone else will be in. But I think at this point, there's just not that level of uh, cohesion necessary to promote someone else to that job as I see it. And I think that part of the problem that the people who are most angry at McCarthy have is that most of them are the ideological conservatives who want him to be further to the right. But after this past election, they're a smaller number than the number of moderates who won because they won in states like New York uh, in surprising fashion. And they made the difference in terms of actually having the majority. And so I actually think one of the big problems that McCarthy is going to have is not on his right flank, you know, assuming that he is the speaker, but actually on that moderate flank where there's going to be a lot of members who are totally happy to, I think, you know, cross the aisle and, and work with Democrats on things, which could be a real thorn in his side. And if that happens too often without him being able to use that whip, as you said, Matt, then I think that there's a high likelihood that he could be replaced after another disappointing cycle. The idea of McCarthy heading up a frat has just put you know, the a vision of Marjorie Taylor Greene rushing in my mind, which is going to be hard, to, hard to shake for some time. <laughs> I'm delighted you raised the kind of House swing and the reasons for it, and particularly where it happened, because I believe all of the Long Island House seats that, you know, the ones that aren't Brooklyn and Queens, went flipped to Republican, carried as a result but of having Lee Zeldin on the ballot for governor. And crime was a major issue, I believe, uh, in voters making their decisions, particularly crime in cities. That's been a kind of defining feature of this year, I think. You know, this is the year where the pandemic is, you know, fully waning and it's meant to be like the back to work year. But something that's putting a lot of people off going back into cities is the level of violent crime. There are obviously a number of different factors for that. Not having people in the first place is one. Not spending money well on social and healthcare and in a position to put it to, in a position to like help the people who need help so that they aren't crazed running around the subway ben looking ahead to next year and given the fact they've got those seats now in the house like what do you see changing on crime in cities well one of the big things that i think is a, a problem that we shouldn't underestimate here is the fact that work from home has emptied out so many of our downtowns across the country and it's led to really chaotic situations where you know you everyone at this point has seen the social media footage of runs on Walgreens and other pharmacies across the, the country in major cities where there's just a sudden pile on people who go in and grab everything. And if you haven't experienced it, then you've definitely experienced the, going into a pharmacy and, or something like that and seeing so many things that you that now have to be unlocked in order for you, you to buy them, but, you know, as if you have to now ask someone to unlock the pistachios for you. I mean, that's the level that we're at in in some that is, places. That is nuts. And I that think is that, nuts. that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, and that uh, that does raise, I think, people's just feeling that there is a level of chaos that perhaps was hidden before by the hustle and bustle of all these working normal people. And now that there are fewer of those, you can much more apparently see the the level of drug addiction and usage and that kind of thing. 
And I really think it's kind of the San Francisco effect, you know, where, you know, people who, if, if you just, if you've talked to anybody who's been to San Francisco recently, you know, they'll tell you things like, you know, I, I was staying at a hotel, a nice hotel, and they told me that I shouldn't walk to the Starbucks on the corner, that I should take an Uber or that they would send somebody, you know, a staffer because I might get mugged. Or, you know, you're, you're going to step in feces, you're going to step on needles, there's going to be all sorts of things that are around you. And I have to tell you, it's actually horribly true. And people don't feel like, they don't feel very confident in America, in America where that's true. It kind of is going to take us back, I think, to, you know, that old often misidentified phrase of broken windows policing, you know, the idea that we have to start having a, a, you know, policing that understands that the more that there's this feeling of urban degradation, the more that it contributes to chaos, the more that it contributes to people not wanting to live in these spaces, and the more that you're going to have problems because of that. That this can be misconstrued sometimes. I was just reading a story today in the New York Times about how they're going to identify the whole area around Penn Station in New York as a blighted area in order to be able to seize property away from the owners there and and make it into, you know, a, a thoroughly corrupt tall building paradise. But I think that, you know, one of the things that is true is that we have to deal with this this blight of crime in our cities. And what that looks like, I think, is frankly a return to what worked before. And, uh, you know, so much of this, unfortunately, I don't like to blame cops in this situation, but a lot of it too has to do with the fact that cops at a certain point when they don't feel like they have the support from, from the politicians who are in charge, they just won't go to those areas. They won't go to them consistently enough. They'll avoid them. And there's a negative ramifications for that. Uh, and you know, it's, it's something that I think has to change. And as much as we are, you know, the, the pandemic sort of accelerated this, you know, I think that there's this huge backlash against this more libertarian minded approach to, uh, uh, to policing in these types of environments that's only going to continue. And certainly it propelled Zeldin to the kind of success that he had. It propelled these new members to the success that they had. And I think you're going to see a lot of Republican candidates run on this in the coming year or begin as they ramp up their campaigns uh, within uh, the uh, states and, and cities across the country. I spoke about this issue at Berkeley fairly recently. I want to say it was in September or October. And it went over about as well as you could expect. I talked about, you know, broken windows, policing theory and all of that good stuff. And the class was absolutely livid. They demanded to know what you do with, with criminals when prisons are overcrowded. And I sort of glibly said, well, you just have to build more prisons. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought one of them was going to run up to the front and punch me out right there. But it was it was quite funny in a way to hear the consternation from these Berkeley students and then you walk a block off campus and you can't even go into a bar or a restaurant without being harassed by mentally ill homeless person. And then the block down, there's a place called People's Park, which is one of the biggest homeless tent cities that I've ever seen. And, you know, local residents were confirming to me that this is a place where a lot of crime occurs and you basically don't walk past it unless you can really help it, because it's basically just asking for trouble. And the the college kids at Berkeley might want to live like that, but most people don't want to live like that. Most people think that that's horrific. And I sat next to this lovely gay couple at dinner that night after I gave my speech and told them what I talked about. And they said, 
you know, we're incredibly liberal, always have been, but the way that this city has deteriorated in the past three years is horrific and something has to be done about it and we're sick of it. And I think that's the attitude of a lot of people, including, you know, Democrats and independents. And it really is a matter of enforcing some of these lower level crimes to bring order back to cities. The National Park Service, I recently reported on this, is going into parks around Washington, D.C. And by the end of next year, they're going to clear out every homeless encampment. And all they have to do is enforce their no camping policy. It's really that simple. You say you're not allowed to camp on public park land and you have to go somewhere else, whether that's a drug addiction treatment center, whether it's a mental illness treatment center, a long-term shelter, or even just temporary housing, you can't stay here. It's really that basic. And cities across the country have refused to do the bare minimum for so long that it has really snowballed into much higher level crimes like carjackings, like murders, like random assaults, like muggings. And it's made it so that the transition post-pandemic for people who do want to get back in the cities is so difficult. You know, I think there are people who would like to work out of an office. There are people who would like to be able to go out for dinner downtown, but they just won't because they're not comfortable with the level of risk that that now requires. And so this is going to be a huge issue over the next couple of years as I think Democrats are even going to have to get on board with the idea that this situation is just untenable. To conclude, I would like you to make a, an, audacious, an audacious 2023 prediction of some kind. If you haven't got one off the top of your head, I've got a guiding question. But then I feel like you've got a few, uh, which, which, you, which you're more than happy to volunteer to the class. I, I feel like, I think 2023 might, uh, this is actually, this is probably the most audacious prediction I could possibly make. I think that 2023 might be the end of the Kardashians. I think them deciding to go thin is a, obviously, you know, it's, it's part of this on trend kind of, you know, thing, but I think they've finally run through and ruined so many men. you know, uh, finally, you know, most, and most explosively with Kanye that I just think that the Kardashians are going to occupy, they're still going to be around obviously, but they, they're going to occupy, I think, a different headspace. And the combination of the the Marilyn Monroe dress, the decision to go skinny, the 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 buckle fat uh, removal trend, which is so creepy, and like a bunch of these things all happening all at once, it just seems to me like I think we're entering a new stage. And I may look. Obviously, Chris Jenner has been able to adapt to every stage of American, you know, sort of cultural life and such a, and use her family to do so in so many different ways. But I, th- I, I think 23 might be actually the last year where they matter to the same degree. So as by this time next year, I have a shot with one of the Kardashians who isn't Rob. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying there's a chance. <laughs> Abba? Well, if we're going the pop culture route, I would say that 2023 is the year that superhero movies become totally passe. The Batman underperformed The Rise of Gru, which I think is the third or fourth sequel to the original Despicable Me movie. And the Avengers shows are getting so just into the weeds with such minor characters that they're 
awful. They're horribly woke. No one's watching them. No one wants to subscribe to Disney Plus to watch Shang Li or whatever it is. Never even heard of it until they started promoting it on every ad that I watched this year. So I think the superhero movies are dying. Avengers Endgame should have been the last one, and the spinoff shows have just gotten so bad. The new Spider-Man movies, I think, left a lot to be desired. Tom Holland, I know a lot of people really lauded his performance as Spider-Man. He just didn't capture that same cringiness that Tobey Maguire was able to. He can't do angst. No. (laughs) No, he can't. I mean, nothing compares to the horrible emo dancing scene in Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire. Just untouchable. So the superhero (laughs) movies are going to be out. I don't know what's going to replace them because apparently everybody loves a remake. But we'll see. Maybe we'll get back to good action movies based on the success of Top Gun Maverick. Can I just add... If, if Amber is correct, it would be a, a situation, and I think she is, it would be a situation where Amber is right and Quentin Tarantino is wrong. <laughs> because Quentin Tarantino they said this past year, he said the problem with these movies is that people don't go to see the stars. They go to see the, the you know, the, the CGI. They go to see, you know, they're seeing this. They go to see the superhero. But by saying that Avengers Endgame is where it should have ended, which I agree with, that's actually saying they went to see the stars. They went to see Robert Downey Jr. They went to see Chris Evans. They don't like to move on from these celebrities that they really liked to, you know, I'm supposed to be a big fan of Sebastian Stan now. <laughs> <laughs> Who I actually love. I love Sebastian Stan, but not so much in a superhero, a superhero movie. movie no, <laughs> and even the new Black Panther, right? You don't have Chadwick Boseman. You know, he tragically passed away after the first movie, and that has underperformed at the box office as well. So you think the highest grossing superhero movie of next year will be Greta Gerwig's Barbie? I don't even know what that is, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Barbie. I thought you said Bobby. My God. You know, I, you think I worked at The Spectator long enough to be able to decipher, but it still gets I me sometimes. Gets when I come back here. So that's why I, <laughs> I basically, this is like rehab for my accent is coming back to England. Matt, do you have a prediction for us? Um, Yeah, I think that in by this time next year, obviously, it will be deep in the headwinds of primary season, I think. And I my prediction is I don't think it will be Biden Trump tied at the top of the polls. I think it'll only be one of them. I think it's likely to be Biden leading the Democratic polls. I think I feel like Trump is he's like I, I don't take a lot of the you know January six probe particularly seriously, or even like the smaller state investigations like what Fannie Wells is doing down in Georgia and those kind of the grand jury down there. I feel like the Justice Department tends to be different because they're a much more serious organization, and therefore I can see some of the fallout from there having a you know continued effect on on Trump and his decline. Now, I don't know whether that means that DeSantis is going to see this as opportunity, but Ben, you've mentioned on the podcast before, you know, he doesn't want to have a 2012 Chris Christie moment. And so, yeah, this time next year, not a Biden uh, Trump. It's not it's not going to be a uh, 2020 do over in, in the primaries. Pop culture, I think Spare by Prince Harry will be in bargain bins by February. I don't. I don't think it's gonna. I, I think it'll do. Obviously, first week very good sales. I think people will tire of it pretty quickly. I hope that a lot of people read our website over it because you know he's a he's a he's a magnet for for that kind of thing. But yeah, I think it's going to be the. You, you, this has already been tail end of this 
year in the UK and I think in the US as well has been a kind of a scales falling off eyes moment for a lot of people on uh, on Meghan and Harry. I think that's going to continue and will be manifested in the sales of that book next month. Let's hope. <laughs> Amber, Ben, thanks so much for your, your time today and have a happy new year. Thanks. Happy new year. Happy new year. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com.